welcome to The Wellness Pie Shop, where each episode we cut into a different slice of wellness to examine how our values and resilience nourish our daily lives. With the help of special guests and our own brand of irreverent insight, we'll dive into some of the ingredients that make up the whole of each of our wellness pies. We're your hosts, Tina Searden and Samaya Ding Lawson. Thanks for joining us. Now let's grab a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and join this week's discussion at the Wellness Pie Shop. Hi, and welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop. Today, we're going to play part two of our interview with Stan Mayer. Is hate a value? Um, I, I believe it is. Um, mm. I believe that it, it has an equal and opposite uh, almost measurable effect. I think that you can walk into a room and, and, and feel hate. And I think mm. that it's, it, I think that is a physical pre- presence. I think that it's the same as love. And I think that mm. they oftentimes exist in proportion to each other. Mm. And that is both a curse and a blessing. Um, but our capacity to feel pain and agony um, is in proportion to our capacity to feel love sometimes. Um, hate, on the other hand, I think can undermine both our love and our pain and agony, which is very problematic, especially for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder that refuse to acknowledge that they have post-traumatic stress disorder because that would make them weak. Uh, that would that would undermine the values of that that Midwestern belief system and where they came from. And you know, Peepaw talking about the you know the good battles and on Iwo Jima and stuff. I think that 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 hate anesthetizes ourselves uh, against our own empathy and our feelings about it. And I think that it's important for, especially for vets who have been in combat to get real comfortable with feeling vulnerability for their, their weakness, their impotency, uh, impotency of, uh, in those, those situations. I mean, there's, there's nothing I've been through so much trauma therapy like I should have a PhD at this point. The uh, the idea that that any of this uh, could be controlled or influenced by little old me at any time, it almost I mean, like they'll teach you in, in certain brands of therapy that uh, it's almost hubris to experience survivor's guilt. You know, in fact, it's not almost; it just is. Mm-hmm. Like oh this guy's dead because I, this, or I, that, or if I would have just did this and they're like, well, let's backtrack and figure out how you got in that situation. How much control over did, did you have over that? Well, right. none whatsoever. But then again, if we backtrack to five minutes ago, I'd say that your presence there kind of starts this reflection, this ping pong reflection back and forth of hate. And that just stews into a problem that cannot be unproblemed, you know? So almost as if hate is almost like a survival mechanism, you know, um, we talk about morals and values and I, I make the assumption that they're all positive, right. But there could be negative values such as hate. And, and I think mm-hmm. in war, I think what I'm sort of sensing from you is it's kind of like a, a defense mechanism almost to protect you against feeling because if you felt you were vulnerable and you were weak, right. I mean, there's nothing more effective and devastating than a platoon of, and I'm not talking about special operators or green berets or something. I'm talking platoon of young 
Marine infantrymen filled with hate in their hearts. And, and I'm not, not trying to be dramatic here. It's something that we actively try to cultivate. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I talk about in my writing a lot, especially when I'm talking to people, you know, uh, our society, we're fixers. We see somebody crying and our immediate reaction is to, to make the, the, the crying stop. Oh, they're there. It's okay. Let me tell you some sweet things or some nice things. We don't want it. We don't want the discomfort of the crying. If you can, if you can activate the vitriol, um, it can be very useful and it makes them very effective. I think that not only is this a survival mechanism, but it's almost like a, a, a meditation a subconscious meditation that kind of uh, gets uh, grown and and fostered in that environment. And I think that it's very useful for teenagers with machine guns to have access to. Um, but I will say that, that as they grow as uh, soldiers, as Marines, um, as they experience combat, especially when you, you start seeing um, special operators who are kind of like, consider themselves like the true practitioners of war and, and they're very conscious where they're doing. They're a lot, uh, usually more educated, usually um, a lot older that they know that emotions at all, whether it be hate or love or anything distract from their efficacy. Mm-hmm. So going, you know, charging up that hill, you know, grinning your teeth and, you know, screaming, uh, you know, die motherfucker die or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, is not really always best practice because there might be a much more controlled kind of venom that is more effective. Again, I go back to that sort of soulless place where it's an empty, it feels very empty. And I just see a special ops or, you know, that, that controlled sort of vitriol, as you called it, just an empty blank place where, you don't have the luxury of emotion. You don't have the luxury of value. You don't have the luxury of ethics or morals. Yeah. You just have yeah. your job, whatever, and whoever that is to target. Yeah. I wonder if I, so what you had said earlier was that, you know, you were, you were in for all these years and then you sort of came out as being creative. Right. And was that something that prior to the military that you felt like you had this creative being inside of you or was that, I want to call it like a little seedling inside that was, you know, kind of sprouted while you were in the military dealing with all this stuff and being watered by pain. You know, there's something very poetic about that. And I have to imagine that in a way that is true, but for me, I was always very eccentric, but I was also very much aware of perception and, and being from where I'm from and being, you know, raised in the community that I was raised in, you don't want to be seen as an eccentric. So like internally, I was very creative and artistic and I was always, um, it'd be it, it, some kind of art. Um, I, I got into photography and I found out that I could, express myself that way I, I built a dark room in my friend's basement and uh, with him and we would shoot photos together and develop them together I, I drew as a kid I, I was like by 
by choice illiterate. Like I refused to read. I refused to write. I could read and write, but I hated it. I hated it. And it wasn't until a teacher in the 10th grade started showing me things that I was interested in. And I got excited about reading all of a sudden, which is really weird. And then he, he taught me how to write. And he essentially told me I was allowed to uh, write words that were my thoughts that I didn't think were valuable because they didn't follow the, the grammar teachers format or they weren't, you know, what we, what I was taught was like a, a real paragraph or something like that, or none of that turned me on. And all of a sudden I realized there was a place for that. I was, uh, I dressed weird. All these things were very eccentric. And then the Marine Corps, I joined that. And real quick, I realized that um, you just don't want to be an outlier, um, mm-hmm. especially when you're a teenager. You, you want to be accepted. And, and to be accepted in the Marines, everyone kind of ends up looking the same, even when they're out of uniform. Yeah. Uh, and that you homogenize real quick. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then by the time I went to Iraq, I'd been in the Marine Corps for five years. And I was also uh, in creative writing major in college. And I was, I was writing a lot while I was in Iraq. I mean, I wrote almost a manuscript to a book while I was there. The damn thing caught on fire when I got hit by the suicide bomber. There was oh, no. a moment, and this is interesting to talk about values. There's a moment. Um, my gunner got blown out of my Humvee when we got hit, and he got killed instantaneously. And um, I crawled back into the Humvee because I was looking for anything that I could use to help him. And it was all engulfed in flames. And I looked down and I saw this, this hard cover, blank hardcover book that, you know, I had filled in with all my handwriting and it was burning. And I, I, I could have reached out and grabbed it, but I, I kind of stopped. I hesitated for a moment and I made it a choice, like what my level of involvement in that moment was, was I there to save this, this, this thing right now? Was I there to be? a writer, a creator, an artist, or was I there to survive at that point? Because lots and lots of people were trying to kill me. So I let go of the book and I let it burn and I picked up my rifle. And, and again, that sounds pretty poetic, but that is literally how it went. I I, Mm -hmm. I chose not to grab the book and I grabbed my rifle instead. And then I, I went to work anyway, the writing that I was doing out there at the time I felt was terrible by the standards of my professors that had taught me better and everything. I felt like I was devoid of creativity in a war zone. What little scraps of paper I did keep from that tour. I now look at 16 years later, some of the best writing that I ever did. And that was when I was, you know, an idiot 23 year old because they were just so dropped in to the, the agony of war. So So yeah, I think both a little bit. I think it was always that way. And I think that I was kind of running a counter to my own like core truth when Mm -hmm. I put on that uniform. I was kind of an eccentric artist that was pretending as best as he could to to be a a Marine. And I was seeing everything through artist eyes. And it was kind of, there was a dissonance between me Mm -hmm. and that guy. And by the time I resigned it it got to a boiling point where i was like i just couldn't do it anymore and my bosses in the agency all took me aside and said you you are never going to stop getting promoted you are never going to get fired 
you have a great job, you're, you're going up from here. You, and like, just do nothing and, and you're going to be good forever. And like, and I was like, you don't understand. I have to write stuff. And they're like, cool, do that after work. I'm like, no, you don't, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I have to go into the bell jar. I have to like tear my heart open and figure out what it is I'm trying to say. And that's not going to be the kind of thing that's going to make me a good intelligence officer. And you just answered a question that we ask, which is, have you ever found yourself in conflict, your values in conflict with, you know, outside sources and your entire, I don't want to say your entire, but especially towards the end when you said, you know, you were just ready to, you had to do this. You had to create, you, you couldn't continue to tear down sure, um, because that was who you were. Um, it sounds like ultimately when you were in that, you had that conflict, you chose to follow your values. You chose to do what it was inside your heart that you needed to do. And that was yes. to get out, to write, to create rather than to destroy. Yeah, absolutely. But I still, I still am living in kind of like a semi or, or completely permeable realm where every so often, I mean, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but playwrights don't get paid a lot. So uh, <laughs> I, I will go, I'll take a contract and I will teach things that I've learned throughout the years to, you know, different DOD entities and, uh, and, and go work. And when I'm around, I'm then around that community, a lot of my friends who I've served with, fought with, you know, um, uh, beside and f- friends who I worked with for years and years and traveled overseas with, I still remain friends with the, and a lot of times I feel like I'm bridging two completely different universes together. So like all of my friends are artists and actors and filmmakers and musicians and, and, you know, in Los Angeles and this summer, a group of friends came to stay with Sissy and I at our house because they wanted to film a uh, music video out here in the desert. And my best friend from the Marine Corps who was in that firefight with me back in 2005 when we were 23 years old uh, was here. And he is absolutely stalwart in, in his um, core beliefs and his, uh, his ethics and his, his values. And uh, one of the, one of the artists that was here, I think the, uh, the lighting engineer, uh, you know, pre- presents, as a male, I, I believe was male at birth. Maybe I don't know if that's the correct way to say it, but but um, but definitely um, identifies as as a woman, and then puts no effort into that. So when he shook my friend's hand and said, "You know, I, I can't remember what is her name is now, but you know, looks like me." shook my, right, right, my right. buddy, the Marine officer's hand and said like, you know, in, in a very feminine voice, hi, I'm Sally. And, or whatever her name was. Um, my friend kind of walked over to the other side of the house and he looked at me and he was like, what the fuck is that? And, uh, oh, and, no. and, and I was like, I was like, it's that's Sally. And he's like, is it a, a boy or a girl? And I said, does it matter? And he kind of looked at me for a second and he was like, 
I'm going to go make Sally some eggs. And he walked inside and made her breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) So like I, I, I watched it. I watched a thing happen and I thought that that was a beautiful moment. And that's a lot for, for my buddy. Cause I never, <laughs> you know, I thought that, you know, he might just dissolve and like crumble into a, you know, a pile of ash in that moment rather than acknowledge that this is reality for him. Cause this is very much up until that moment. And I don't know if it changed that much in him, but a conversation that he might've came at me with is like, there are two genders. I don't care what you say. It's science. But in that moment, he was like, mm-hmm. well, I'm a nice person and I want to cook breakfast for these people. And that person isn't like a threat to, so like all of a sudden he realized that that was a human over there and was cool with it. So I I end up in this like cross section a lot with, with former very conservative people or, or, or people that are very conservative that I was formerly very much, um, yeah, socially in bed with, with people that are on the opposite side of the spectrum now that I'm making art with. Just to wrap up, it sounds like his value of kindness superseded his other conservative values, right? Yeah. Kind human being, I mean, was at the end of the day was most important. So, yeah. Well, here's a very, very rough man and um, that does not, does not show um, his softness, you know, uh, his belly to, to essentially anyone. But I've, I've watched that guy very and not carelessly very intentionally put himself in grave grave danger where it would almost be ludicrous to imagine surviving to protect his friends his potential and capacity for love is just exponent i mean it's it's unending it's huge i've seen a kind of love come from these people and then we have conversations we get older and we're all you know 40 in our early 40s now and and uh, it's, it, it kind of gels those those kind of stubborn backwards beliefs from before, and they, they get a little bit more frustrating to talk to. And uh, and I kind of I don't I don't poke because you'll get an equal and opposite reaction, and that usually contributes to the solidifying of of those beliefs that I might not agree with now, but. If I know better, if I know, like, I know that this guy loves people more than he, you know, has his capacity for love that he's not even aware of. If I put him in the room with my most flamboyant drag queen friend, he's going to fall in love with that human just on a human level, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just kind of get to kind of sit back and enjoy watching these, these collisions happen. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it goes sideways, but for the most part, it's, it's a good thing for society, I think. So I wonder what would you say, um, and it cut you. I, I kind of have a clue because what you just said in sort of fusing these two worlds. Um, what do you think your secret is to you know making your values work in your life right now? I, on a on a base level, I would say uh, empathy number one, and I feel my empathy slipping away sometimes. I get angry. I, I can't open up a news article without doing that and i i have to even uh towards i mean especially especially more so towards people that i don't agree with i have to foster and and if not foster i have to manifest empathy where there was none i was just reading a book about uh kent state and i went to kent state when you orient when you do your orientation for kent state you you just learn about 
uh, the National Guard and the shooting and the students that were killed and why. I'm reading this book right now and I'm looking at these these vignettes of these women that were going to school at the time, you know, and they're, they're 20 years old and they're talking about finding, finding a boyfriend and they're saying, Oh, they're so serious right now though. I don't, I, I can't deal with these guys. They're so political. They're so serious. But if you think about it, 20 year old boy in college at that time, cannot think about anything else, but the fact that Nixon is wrapping up the war and the draft is paring away at deferments, the college isn't good enough anymore. And that, and all of these people, 11,000 boys a year are coming back in body bags and he's about to be one of them. And he's got that number on his draft card. And, and you think about that and you think about how he felt about the man and what was happening in society then. And then you think about those same people now and you have boomer mentality and, uh, and it's completely 180 degrees. Now the man is like, you know, trust the man, all that. And uh, I guess what I'm, I'm getting a little loquacious for my point. And it's just this, it's that I have to empathize with that because they've, they've mm-hmm. felt it before they've seen it too. And the more empathy I garner and deliver to them, the the more they can't they can't argue with me and also it helps that i mean i'm a little tongue-in-cheek right now but on paper i'm, I'm a freaking war hero right i've got medals for valor i have a purple heart i've served more tours than a lot of guys served less than a lot of guys too i've been in it I, and and not like a little bombing here and there like i've been in gunfights i've done the thing so when i get with other you know uh, these guys, I think they're alphas or something like that. First of all, there's no such thing as an alpha male. They're just boys. They, I can kind of throw down Trump cards and say like, well, that doesn't bother me. And, you know, if we're going to compare notes here on masculinity by your standard, then I think you got to listen to me, you know, and it pisses people off, but I get a little bit of room to speak that other people might not. Stan, I th- thank you so much for being on our show, I'm just sitting here and I was quiet a lot, a lot because I'm just astounded at what resilience you have mm-hmm. and the human spirit. I say this almost every day. It knows no limit as far as its capacity for suffering. And I, to have you on the show, to have you sitting across from me. And I, I, um, I just think, holy cow, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine what you've been through and what you've seen. You're a human being just like me, and yet your experience is so vastly different. And that might be a slight tiny bit of what you might've been feeling when you were preparing for that play with your you know, friends as a, you know, the white cop in the black play. So the empathy thing, what's so amazing about that is you've been through war, through literally hell and back, seen people die. You've seen the worst of humanity, yet you can walk away as a human being and realize that at the end of the day, to be empathetic is, is the most important. And I just, you know, applaud you for that because not many people can be what you've been through and end up where you're at and how you feel today. So. Well, thank you for, for saying that. And I, I I don't want to paint myself as a saint um, though, because uh, this, this has been a work in progress and I've gotten there through moments of great, great shame. I've, I, and, and anger and things like that. I mean, uh, talk to my girlfriend and, and, and not that I've ever directed it at her, but she's had to drag me out of streets before, you know, like, and somebody won't stop honking their horn. I'm out of my car beating on the hood of a car. Right. And I'm completely out. And when that happens, shame uh, goes from my body and my, 
my repulsion, uh, that shame feeling has mm. taught me that there has to be something else otherwise, cause I can't live with that feeling inside of me. Mm. So I've kind of forced myself to have a, uh, initial reaction might be rage, mm -hmm. but I never experienced rage without first, without immediately thinking like, Oh, this is the, the next feeling. It's a shame feeling. Okay. What do I do now? Empathy. Okay. And then go into that. So, mm -hmm. uh, the brokenness is, I think my strength and, uh, uh, without that, I would just be kind of like a regular ass dude. And I have no interest in, in being a regular ass dude. That's boring anyway. <laughs> it is boring. Stan, again, thank you so wow. much. I just, I, I love that you are here with us and your story is amazing. Uh, as long as I've known you, I've not really known your story. Uh, you know, so I just, I just thank you very much. And thank you. Oh, for sharing you're very welcome. Us. You're very welcome. I really appreciate you guys listening to me. Uh, I am verbose and loquacious and you're very patient and uh, yeah. Uh, I, the play that Sissy and I wrote about my experience in, in war is, is going back up in, in uh, uh, February. So. Oh, it is. Is I, it playing I, up in LA? Yeah. I'd love for you to come see it and get a, get a comprehensive view of what that story I looks like. I would love to see that. Absolutely. That amazing. What's the name? Mama, mama, can't you see? Mama, mama, and where's it going to be playing? Do you know? Uh, I, I think that the theater they signed a contract for the theater called like the Actors Theater. It's not the Actors Studio, but not, I, I don't remember what the name of the theater is. But it will be in there. It's going to be in Hollywood on Formosa, and I think it opens in February sometime. We'll see what happens. We'll okay. be there. We'll be there, and I'm I'm gonna. Yep. I really want to see that. So hopefully we can I can arrange some childcare or something. Lovely. All right. Well, thank you. All right, Stan. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. So powerful what he was it saying. Is. It's it's the story. Um, well, what's so interesting that's different from our previous social worker guests is he told his values or taught us his values through storytelling. Yes. Is what I realized yes. is, and it was actually better that we listened because we had to pay attention to what he was telling us because the values were embedded in his stories. Mm-hmm fascinating discussion. I can listen to him for hours. Yeah. And I would love to have him on again as well and talk, tell more about his story. I think that there's way more to unpack there at any rate for our listeners, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our podcast on yeah. any of your favorite podcast listening platforms. This is my, uh,